Hello, everybody, and welcome. I'm Peter Goldstein, founder and chief synergy officer at We Did It. And our mission with We Did It is to uh, spread the word about a, a plant-based vegan, whole foods, plant-based lifestyle. And our very focus is about empowering uh, grassroots ambassadors, the consumers to be more effective ambassadors. And with that, we uh, have a certification program that helps everybody uh, learn to be better communicators. And uh, I'm sorry, I'm noticing that I'm not sure. Okay, I think we're live. Um, wow, okay. <laughs> I'll start over. Hello, everybody, and welcome. I'm Peter Goldstein, founder and chief synergy officer with We Did It Health, And I want to welcome you today for another very special presentation with Glenn Mercer, who's an author and an advocate for, for the environment, for health, and I'm really pleased to have him with us. So please uh, uh, subscribe to our Facebook, uh, to our YouTube channel, uh, be member of our Facebook groups. And now we are have a podcast, so check out our podcast. And uh, without any further ado, I'd like to welcome Glenn. And hello, Glenn, welcome. Thank Hello, you for Peter. joining us. And uh, let, let me say, Glenn, you've, you've written some amazing books uh, and uh, appreciating you for that. You've written uh, a book about owning your own health. You've written a book about food as climate. Um, you've written one about unprocessed. And uh, we love what you've done. And, and I'm so excited to have you share more of your wisdom and, and some tips to help empower the grassroots ambassadors as we try to uh, ins inspire hopeful curiosity with our friends and loved ones and acquaintances. So welcome. Thank you, Peter. And uh, and just to make sure that uh, I don't seem to take credit for uh, Chef AJ's work, I was Chef AJ's uh, co-author on Unprocessed. It's far more her book than mine, but I helped her a little bit. Uh, my book, Own Your Health, Chef AJ in turn added recipes to that one. And then uh, my book, Food is Climate, uh, a number of chefs, including Chef AJ, added recipes to it. Um, but uh, I, have, um, I have evolved from writing just about health to writing now about the climate and the environment as well. Beautiful. So I understand you have a presentation you'd like to go through. And then yes. I want to invite everybody to, to submit your questions uh, in, in the comments there. And uh, we'll attempt to answer them all at, uh, later on in the show. And with that, I see that Ken and Allison are with us. Welcome, Ken and Allison. And welcome, everybody else who's joined us. So here's the presentation for Glenn. And a convenient truth. So please share with us your right. your wisdom and your knowledge. I'll do what I can <laughs> with the little that I have. Um, uh, I call it a convenient truth because there's one solution to so many of our problems that is very convenient. Uh, we can do make one simple change and we can solve so many of the 
most troubling problems in the world. Um, I want to focus for today on the environment and the climate um, rather than health, but nothing affects our health, of course, more than the ability to breathe. And we now face a climate emergency. Now, we all have heard a million times that climate change is caused by the burning of fossil fuels, right? We, we've been told this for 30 years, and yet we burn more fossil fuels now than we did 30 years ago. So trying to solve this problem by reducing our burning of fossil fuels is not something that we've been very successful at. But the truth is that while burning fossil fuels is a problem, it is only the second leading cause of climate change. The leading cause of climate change by far is animal agriculture. So why are we being misled on this? Why is animal agriculture rarely discussed? And most of the leading climate spokesmen like Al Gore concentrate solely on fossil fuel burning. First of all, there's the visual bias. You can see smoke coming out of smokestacks and think, oh, that's terrible. We're polluting the atmosphere. You can't see that these cows over here are, are belching methane all day long. And methane is 120 times as potent a greenhouse gas as carbon dioxide. Uh, the IPCC, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, always tries to find ways to, to minimize uh, the, uh, the power of methane to heat the environment because methane over time will degrade into carbon dioxide and water. But the reality is that the instantaneous heating potential of methane is 120 to 130 times carbon dioxide. So animal agriculture is actually responsible for at least 87% of greenhouse gases. And this is from the peer-reviewed paper by my friend Silas Rao that is entitled Animal Agriculture is the Leading Cause of Climate Change, a position paper published in 2021 in the Journal of Ecological Society. Um, the reason that Silas came to the figure of 87% is that he included things that, that the leading climate spokesman and the IPCC don't usually consider. Most importantly, what's called carbon opportunity cost. Carbon opportunity cost is the analysis of what would happen if we didn't have animal agriculture. Well, over 40% of the Earth's surface is grazed by animals uh, for the purpose of fattening them so we could eat them. But what if we didn't eat cows and sheep and goats and they, we, we didn't fence off areas and allow them to graze? Um, if at least 41% of that area came back to forest, uh, Dr. Rao has proven that that would sequester enough carbon dioxide to get us back to the levels of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere before the industrial age. So if we could just 
revegetate and reforest enough of the world, we could draw down enough carbon dioxide to end this crisis. Um, solar panels are better than coal-fired plants, uh, but solar panels do not sequester carbon dioxide. They're not helping us draw down, they're just helping us emit less. And there is a degree of, of carbon dioxide created when you make solar panels, you know, in the mining of the minerals needed for to create solar panels and so forth. So solar panels are not a net zero emissions uh, technology, but they're of course much better than coal fire plants, but they don't sequester, they don't draw down carbon dioxide. Neither do uh, wind turbines. To draw down carbon dioxide, you need forests, you need trees, you need vegetation. So if we turned over 40% of the earth that's currently being grazed, if we rewild it and turned it back over to the plants, we could go a long way to ending the crisis. The other thing we need is the oceans. We need healthy oceans. And if we ended industrial fishing, we could save the oceans. And the oceans sequester more carbon dioxide than anything else on the planet. We would also have healthier soils if we reforest the world and revegetate the world. And health and the soils sequester even more carbon dioxide than the trees. Um, so using the factor of, uh, of imagining a world without animal agriculture being rewilded and sequestering carbon dioxide, that's what brought Silas Rao to his figure of 87% of greenhouse gases are actually caused uh, um, by animal agriculture. But Dr. Rao did not include every factor that he could have. He did not include, for example, animal respiration. Now we have 25 billion farmed animals at any given time uh, exhaling carbon dioxide. He could have chosen to include that. Uh, he understandably felt that, hey, once you get to 87% of greenhouse gases, he didn't have to go higher than that. But he, I think he would have been uh, entitled to include the carbon dioxide from the respiration of 25 billion farmed animals. Silish also didn't include pasture maintenance fires. Now, pasture maintenance fires are set every year in grazing operations. What they do is they graze the cows and anything that the cows don't eat, bushes and other things that grow on the, on the land, the ranchers burn. And uh, I'll show you later an image of pasture maintenance fires on a given day around the world. There are fires all over the world every day caused by um, ranchers trying to burn everything the cows don't eat. Well, nobody is monitoring pasture maintenance fires. Nobody knows how much carbon dioxide is going into the atmosphere from pasture maintenance fires. And so Silish couldn't include that in his calculations, but it would be a tremendous number and it would make 
that 87% figure go much higher. Another thing Silish couldn't possibly calculate is the bottom trawling of the oceans. Industrial fishing operations trawl the bottom of the oceans, kicking up sediment, reducing the carbon capture capability of the oceans. And that is a, uh, a, a disservice to our ability to sequester carbon dioxide. But nobody's measuring it. It would be a very difficult thing to measure. And uh, so Silas did not include that. The other thing is that because of our industrial fishing operations, we have less whales, um, uh, less fish. Uh, we have uh, sea forests that have been disturbed. And we have decreased sequestration from the diminished phytoplankton populations due to industrial fishing and the diminished sea forests. So what if we had healthier sea forests and healthier phytoplankton populations? How much more carbon dioxide could we sequester? Again, nobody's measuring this. It's not something that Silas could have responsibly been able to add to his figures and calculate, so he left that out. So I'll give you an anecdote here. I said to Silas one day, I said, well, what if you, you know, uh, made an estimate, of, you know, just did your best to guess how much, uh, how much more carbon dioxide we could sequester if we had healthy oceans, if we stopped bottom trawling, and how much less carbon dioxide would be put into the atmosphere with pasture maintenance fires. And if you had included, and this could be calculated, the animal respiration from 25 billion farmed animals, how much higher would, uh, would we go from 87% currently of greenhouse gases being caused by animal agriculture? And Silas thought about it and he, he said, uh, it may be as high as 120% of greenhouse gases from animal agriculture. And I laughed. 120%? How could it be higher than 100%? That seems crazy. 120% of greenhouse gases are caused by animal agriculture? But as Silas explained to me, in fact, it can be more than 100%. Because when we talk about how much greenhouse gases are going into the atmosphere, that's the amount that we're emitting each year. But we want to draw down carbon dioxide. We want to uh, uh, sequester carbon dioxide. And, and so what animal agriculture is doing is preventing so much sequestration. Without animal agriculture, we might be in a net negative. In other words, we might be drawing down carbon dioxide. So, um, and, and remember that the, before the Industrial Revolution, there were 280 parts per million of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere, and now there's 420. So we want to go down. The only way you go down is to reduce car, uh, CO2 emissions by more than 100%, and we could probably do that just by ending animal agriculture. This is a fire map that I mentioned. The, these red areas are pasture maintenance fires set on any given day around the world. When you look at this map, notice all that patch of brown, the Sahara Desert, Northern Africa, going to the deserts of the Middle East. 
going to the um, Thar Desert in northern India and to the Gobi Desert in China. Uh, isn't it interesting that in this map of the world that we've, you know, we've all seen maps like this before and we're used to seeing a lot of brown in that area. Why, why was the earth created with deserts over there? Well, it wasn't. 10,000 years ago, the Sahara was forested. What happened 10,000 years ago? The beginnings of agriculture and animal agriculture. And so the Sahara was created to a large extent might not have been the only cause. Other causes, including the wobble of the Earth's axis, are sometimes given by scientists. But people started chopping down trees for agriculture 10,000 years ago. People started grazing cows and sheep and goats. And that's what you do to the Earth when you engage in those practices. So look at South America and all those fires. Well. We're doing it again, and one day the, the Amazon may be a patch of brown. So it's what we do to the earth that creates our climate crisis. And we've already damaged vast sections of the earth with animal agriculture. So we're destroying life on the, the planet. Animal agriculture and industrial fishing are the leading causes of greenhouse gases, deforestation and desertification, ocean dead zones, biodiversity loss, water scarcity, and pandemics. So let's compare social goods between, say, manufacturing and animal agriculture. And the, just the burning of fossil fuels in general and animal agriculture. Well, the burning of fossil fuels, I'm not defending it. I'm not, you know, I, in my, I had a house once with solar panels. I drive an electric car. I'm not um, defending the oil companies. But you have to admit that the burning of fossil fuels gives us a lot of social goods. People use it for transportation. They use it to heat their homes and to cool their homes. They use it to uh, fly in airplanes uh, and um, uh, to manufacture goods. So the burning of fossil fuels has many positives, but unfortunately it also damages the environment and, and contributes to global warming. Now let's compare that to eating cows. There are no positives. There's simply not a single positive thing about animal agriculture. If you're going to argue, well, it gives us food. No, it gives us less food. If we ate the grains that we're feeding to animals, if we ate them directly, we would have 10 times as much food. So we have less food. We get fat and sick and diabetic. We get cancer. We get autoimmune diseases. We get all kinds of conditions that are caused by the stupidity of eating animals. And we damage the soil and we uh, damage the water. It takes far, far more water to eat and to grow animal foods than plant foods. So we create droughts and create water crises and we create pandemics. So you look at the two, you compare the two. Fossil fuel burning has some social goods, as regrettable as it may be. Eating animals no social goods at all, only harms. 
So why won't Al Gore, Bill Gates, Paul Hawken, the other leading climate spokesmen ever focus on animal agriculture? Is it because they're fools? Of course, they're not fools. These are intelligent people. Is it that they're corrupt? I don't believe that. I mean, Bill Gates is trying to give all his money away. He's got more money than, or most of his money away. He's got more money than he could spend in 10,000 lifetimes. Uh, Paul Hawken and Al Gore, I don't think, are worried about money. I don't think they're corrupt. Paul Hawken, as a young man, uh, turned down a very lucrative position in order to keep running his small business. The reason they don't focus on animal agriculture is that they're part of the same culture we are. And they don't want to be challenging that culture. They don't want to be telling people not to eat meat and not to eat dairy. They, they, they simply don't challenge the culture. If you assume that people must always eat meat and must always eat chicken and must always eat cheese, that we must eat the way we eat, then they're right that the leading cause of animal agriculture is fossil fuels because then you can't even consider animal agriculture. But it's a failure of imagination. We have to imagine a world that is organized more intelligently. In order to heal, we have to leave our wounds alone. If you injure your arm uh, and you go to the doctor and you have a wound, the doctor never dresses the wound and then tells you, okay, now I want you to go home and scratch it every day. No, the doctor will tell you, leave it alone and it will heal. We are self-healing mechanisms as human beings. And so is the earth. In order to heal the earth, we need to leave as much of it alone as we can. Well, what does that mean to leave the earth alone? How do you leave the earth alone? Well, if we stop eating animals, if we stop that stupidity, we could leave more than 80% of the earth alone to heal. How do I come up with 80%? Well, 70% of the earth is oceans. So if we stop the stupidity of eating fish, we could leave 70% of the earth alone. We could heal the oceans. Now, of course, we would still have uh, you know, uh, shipping and, uh, you know, probably still the cruise industry. And, uh, you know, we, I'm not saying nobody will ever go out on the oceans, but the greatest harm to the oceans is being caused by industrial fishing. So we could go a long, long way to healing the oceans if we end industrial fishing. 37% of the non-ice land surface of the earth is devoted to grazing, and uh, 6% of it is devoted to growing feed for animals. So uh, of the 30% of the earth that's land, more than 40% of that is currently being turned over to the animal agriculture business. So if you add it all up, it's well above 80% of the earth that we could leave alone to heal. We could reforest the land. We could let the oceans heal and the whales come back and the fish come back and the phytoplankton come back and the sea forests come back and have healthier oceans. This is an image of a once barren landscape in India in, in 2002. 
And then they ended grazing on that land. And that's what it looked like a mere four years later. That's what we could do to the entire earth. So there's one diet, which is our natural human diet. Fruits, vegetables, mushrooms, nuts, seeds, legumes, whole grains. That one diet, our natural human diet, protects us against heart disease, type 2 diabetes, obesity, cancer, inflammatory diseases, food scarcity, water scarcity, climate disaster, deforestation and desertification, ocean destruction, and biodiversity loss. Isn't that convenient? Isn't it convenient that you just make one little change, eat like human beings, eat the food that we were designed to eat, you get healthier, the planet gets healthier, we reverse climate change, and we solve so many problems. As my friend Silas Rao once told me, there's nothing that doesn't improve when you end animal agriculture. There is nothing that doesn't improve. These are my two latest books, Own Your Health and Food is Climate. Uh, Own Your Health is available at bookstores and Amazon. Food is Climate is available just on Amazon. And I have a website at glennmercer.com. And with that, I'm happy if people want to contact me through the website, feel free, please do. With that, I will end the slideshow. Well done. Wow. Amazing. Thank you so much, Glenn. We have so many comments, people loving the information you're sharing and appreciating it. So we have JJ and Shenessee and Rosanne and and um, a couple other people. Let me see who else was on here with us. Ken and Allison, uh, thank you all for joining us. And, and uh, Glenn, thank you so much for for this information. The um, couple things that that I find just so amazing. I, I've taken some notes here. So, so are you proposing that really? Um, so much of this is the ocean. So, so is can you? Do you have a, a way of comparing uh, leaving the oceans alone and reforesting or, or allowing the land to regreen? Does uh, Can you compare the impact of the two? Um, that, that's a difficult question. I would just say we have to do both. <laughs> you know, we, Absolutely. We, you know, and, and from a health standpoint, too, some people say, well, I don't eat meat. I eat fish. I have bad news for those people. Flesh is flesh is flesh. It's the same thing. The, the, uh, the, the fish flesh has added mercury and other toxins. Um, you know, so you have a slightly different toxin profile, but it's the same basic thing. It's, it's fat and saturated fat and no fiber and no phytochemicals and no antioxidants. Flesh is flesh is flesh. So uh, we just have to stop eating animals because we are, as human beings, not designed to eat animals. Absolutely. Absolutely. And of course, we have so many doctors so, showing us so much evidence of that. Um, certainly starting with Dr. Campbell and, and the, uh, the China study and on and on, probably 
probably tens if not a hundred thousand studies showing us how unhealthy uh, anything but a whole food plant-based uh, no salt sugar and oil diet is um, so I, I think the main the main focus that we have here is is to empower ourselves to be more effective ambassadors as as we have it now the uh, the nutrition facts about a plant-based lifestyle, as well as the concept of advocating vegan a lifestyle for animal compassion, they've been around for 75 years yet. Uh, we don't have enough traction yet. So uh, I would love to hear from you some, some thoughts, some suggestions, some strategies, strategies that may have worked for you, strategies that we can all try on to to spread the word to to plant seeds so we not only need to plant seeds to reforest we need to plant seeds to to get people curious and interested in changing their lifestyle it's a, it's the great question and it's you know it's the uh 64,000 or million dollar question because it's <laughs> it's so extraordinarily hard to get so many people to change their ways because of culture. It's just people's cultures. You know, their their mommies and daddies fed them milk and meat, and they don't want to believe that their mommies and daddies did something wrong. And you grow up in a culture where other people are eating meat, and there's July 4th barbecues and Thanksgiving turkey, and it's just normal. It's just normal. And so people um, view themselves, even as they get fat and sick, they view themselves as eating a normal diet. And they view someone like me, who is the same weight I was in high school and college and have never taken a pharmaceutical drug in my life at the age of 67, uh, other than the occasional antibiotic uh, when I needed to. Um, uh, they view me as being extreme on a nutty diet. I'm the one eating a normal human diet. They're the ones eating animal carcasses and, and chicken menstruation products and, uh, and bovine lactation products. I'm the one eating normally. They think I'm strange and they're normal because the culture is uh, powerful. And so we just have to try to open people's eyes. You know, there's a line in the movie Cool Hand Luke, uh, what we have here is a failure to communicate. Well, what we have in America and in the world is a failure of imagination. People are not imagining a world that could be so much healthier. They're not imagining what it would be like if we made a transformation to a vegan world and um, allowed ourselves to think that, oh, we could actually change our culture. We don't actually have to eat what mommy and daddy fed us. Maybe mommy and daddy were wrong. You know, they were just listening to grandmommy and granddaddy. So, you know, we have science today. We know the science. There is no serious dispute over the science. Nutrition is not a controversial subject. They just try to make it appear to be a controversial subject. There is nobody seriously out there who believes that you treat heart disease with sausages and scrambled eggs. So 
we know the healthy diet. The only obstacle is that the medical profession sides with the culture and they just don't imagine that people can change, that their patients can change, that anybody will eat other in a way different from the culture. So they'll just tell you, cut down a little on your meat. Now have some white meat, chicken and fish, which is, of course, the same thing. Um, and they don't study nutrition in medical school, so the doctors don't usually know anything about it anyway. Uh, and um, so, so, you know, what we're up against is culture. It, it is not a battle between science and science. It is a battle between science and culture. Well put. That's yes, it is. It's it's our beliefs. It's it's culture. It's how we've been brainwashed by our culture and and how we grow up wanting knowing that and expecting that what we know is normal and right. And and um, of course, unfortunately, you you made a statement here that and, and I'm kind of uh, not seriously, but I'm going to challenge you. Um, and challenge isn't the right word at all, but you said we eat what we used to eat, something like that. So did, did I hear you right saying something about we're pretty much uh, eating? We're going to have to play it back. I don't know what I said. Okay. All right. Well, you said something like that because what occurred to me is that, yeah, well, it's eating meat and eating milk and eggs and stuff. That's that's true, but it's very different in that it's so so processed. So there's so many antibiotics. There's so so much so so much worse than the food. So so much processing. So we're not really eating the food that we used to eat. We're we're well, eating well, highly let me, processed. Let me address that. The issue of processed foods and that's yes. Jeff AJ's book Unprocessed that I helped her with. Uh, makes that case that we should be eating whole foods, not processed foods. Um, but let me first apply it to animal foods because you sometimes hear people say, oh, these modern uh, feedlot operations are terrible. They're an environmental nightmare. And that's why I eat only regeneratively raised beef or grass-fed beef or something. Let me try to disabuse people of that myth your grass-fed beef, you couldn't tell under a microscope the difference between it and the, and the feedlot beef. Again, it's all the same thing. Meat is meat is meat. It's no fiber. It's, it's toxins and endotoxins. It's uh, too much fat, too much saturated fat, and too much protein and unhealthy protein, high in methionine, the amino acid that's been linked to cancer, very sulfuric protein. So let's look at meat, even if it's regeneratively raised meat from cows that are petted every day by the farmers before they're sent to the same slaughterhouses as the feedlot cows. Um, it's, um, there, are no, there are no antioxidants in even regeneratively raised meat. There's no phytochemicals. There's too much protein. There's and you, the body can't store protein. So as you piss out the excess protein, you're giving yourself osteoporosis. So um, there's too much protein, and the protein is is carcinogenic, as T. Colin Campbell um, explained in depth in in uh, the China study. 
Um, so the protein is bad for you. The fat we know is bad for you and causes heart disease and diabetes. There's no carbohydrate. There's no fiber. And there's a, a very limited amount of water. And you compare that to an apple. With an apple, you get plenty of water. You get fiber. You get a smidgen of protein. That's all you need. You get a smidgen of fat. And you get uh, healthy uh, carbohydrate and glucose to fuel your cells. So there's just nothing in meat that is healthy. There's no case for meat, whether it's regeneratively raised or, or feedlot. And if you say, well, at least the regeneratively raised is better for the environment, I would challenge that. I would say it's worse for the environment. As big a nightmare as it is to create these feedlots with the lagoons of manure and the fouling of the waters and the, the sprays, and it is, it's horrible. As bad it is, as it is, it's quite possible that the, feed, the grass-fed and the regeneratively raised beef is even worse because that's what's taken up the land. Remember, I said there's no way we restore the climate unless we turn the land back over to the forests and to the vegetation. Well, at least the feedlots aren't taking up that much space. And the cows are not living as long as the grass-fed cows because the, the grass-fed cows live a little longer because they're getting some exercise, so they take longer to uh, reach their so-called... Uh, uh, you know, they're killing weight. I forget the term they use for it. Um, and so since they live longer, they belch more methane. So you have the, the grass-fed, and, and they belch more methane, by the way, just naturally by eating grass. So they're creating more methane for a longer period of time. They're burning more land into desert, and they're taking up more space. So the grass-fed beef is worse for the planet than even the nightmare of the feedlot beef. So that's beef. Then there's processed foods that are plant-based. There's, you know, there's white bread. And that's terrible. So you want to avoid the processed, refined fibers on the issue of health. Uh, you want to have the whole grains rather than the refined grain. You want to have the brown rice, preferably to the white rice. You want to have you know, uh, apples are a little better than applesauce, but applesauce isn't terrible. Um, so um, it's better to eat whole foods. And there, I agree with you. Um, and, uh, you know, as much as possible, we have to eat a whole food, uh, vegan, low-fat diet. Absolutely. And, and what I was trying to say, and I so poorly... Uh, express is that we're, we're not we're eating similar foods but it's just so much worse so so it, it used to be awful and of course dr campbell 40 years ago showed how how uh, uh cancer cells grow on animal protein and die from plant protein and and then came the china study so what i'm trying to say is that it was it was terrible then and now with all the chemicals and the growth hormones and everything is just horrifically worse and not that it makes that much of a difference because it was already bad enough uh let me share here ken uh, had a comment i'd like to share um and he would like you to talk about the acceleration of the of veganism that's going on. 
Um, well, I, I I certainly hope it's accelerating. I don't know what the numbers are. I know that the numbers aren't good enough for me. I want it to go to 100%. Um, uh, I could only say that, you know, we all do what we can to accelerate it. I write books and um, I try to spread the word whenever I can, however I can, because I really think it's the only hope for humanity. In a way, we have to think of veganism not just as a diet. And of course, when we talk about veganism, there are people on an unhealthy vegan diet, you know, if they're having soda and donuts that are vegan, that's not healthy. So we have to talk about a whole foods, low fat vegan diet. But um, um, what we have to do is try to get as close to 100% of the world on that diet as we can. And it's, it's obviously a daunting challenge. Let's see. Again, from Ken, the Seventh-day Adventist network of hospitals recently recommended a vegan diet for all their patients. Uh, and Ken and Allison are in Lima, Peru, so including us in Lima, Peru. So the Seventh-day Adventists, and of course, we know about them with the Blue Zones. Um, can you comment on this? Well, uh, the, the Blue Zones around the world are the places where, the, where there are the longest-lived populations, and they tend to have some things in common, uh, a high consumption of legumes, um, a low consumption of meat, and uh, getting exercise and fresh air and, a, the, and having a sense of community. Um, I would suggest that we vegans can become a community. We can give ourselves that just by staying in touch with each other. Um, and uh, exercise is always to the good. And, of course, we don't eat meat and animal products. So we've, we've got what the blue zones have just by following this path. Um, so we could move, we could make the world blue wherever we are. Make the world blue again. Huh? Yes. <laughs> That's, I like that. That's a, Maybe like, we could get blue caps to wear. Yes, that's what that's what we need, right? Make the world blue again with our blue caps, right? So, um, Ken talking about the recommendations for the hospitals, and of course, uh, we're all celebrating uh, New York, the New York City hospitals. Their default meal offering is is plant based. Um, yeah. So, yeah, so so maybe these are a couple examples of of veganism spreading and. Certainly, really slow for all of us, and at the same time, it's in the right direction. So we just now need to kick up that momentum. Uh, Glenn, I appreciate your comment on community, and and community is a big part of what what our work is. And I'll I'll plug our work for a moment here, and and we are creating a community. We are our mission is to create a platform to amplify everybody's voices. Uh, and so we can all network and synergize, and together we can we can inspire hopeful curiosity in, in as many people as we can. So uh, thank you, Ken. Um, 
And Ken, I'm wondering if uh, how that's working in Lima. So are, are the hospitals embracing that? Of course, we all know that that's the right thing for hospitals. I mean, how much more ironic than, than hospitals feeding disease-producing food to their patients? I mean, that's that, that has to be right there at the edge of a uh, the far edge of abs absurdity. Um, next, uh, we have a comment here from Shennessy. It is disturbing to think about that only one percent are vegans. One percent of vegans are activists to make change. All need a lot more. We we need a lot more activists yeah. in Shennessy. Yeah, uh, please me, comment me, on that, Glenn. Yeah, let me comment on that. It's, I absolutely agree. Um, I myself was a, was what I call a shy vegan. When I became a vegan, when I, well, I became a vegetarian at the age of 17. I never talked about it. I mean, I didn't hide it from people. But if anyone asked, I'd say I was a vegetarian. But I wasn't interested in converting anyone else to it. I was doing it for my own health. Not that I had any health problems, but that there was a lot of heart disease in my family. Um, and then when I became a vegan, it was the same thing. I was trying to improve my health starting in my um, early to mid thirties. Uh, I became a vegan and again, I was doing it for my own health. So I wasn't interested in converting other people. I now try to convert other people professionally. <laughs> it's now my career to try to convert people to veganism. It's, it's what I do. And, um, and it's because uh, the planet will not survive unless we create a vegan world. Um, and uh, I think what I was starting to say before is we have to stop thinking of veganism just as a diet, but think of a vegan e economy. Think of a vegan civilization. Think of, imagine a world in which parents taught their children, we don't hurt animals, we don't eat animals. Um, imagine how much gentler that world would be. You know, if, if, you're, if you're taught that we don't kill, then maybe we'll have less killing. You know, maybe, you know, they have found links between people who tortured animals and then went on to kill people. Um, it's, it's, um, that it's, there's an inherent violence in all meat eating. Now, most meat eaters are good people and they don't try to harm other people, but they have to live with this cognitive dissonance that there is violence inherent in their food. You know, the, the, the root of their food is violence. And, uh, we vegans, are you know are innocent on that charge we're not we're not killing anything in order to have food to eat um so um it, it's we i think we should think of veganism as as a as a an economy as a philosophy as a as a um uh, you know uh, a part of, of, of a healthier civilization as well as just a healthier diet. A, a way of life. Yes. Yes, so a whole consciousness. Um, well, with that, Ken, uh, Ken came back again and says that 
55%, and this is awesome. This is absolutely awesome to see that immediately 55% of new uh, patients in New York hospitals have chosen the vegan option. So as a first go around, as I, I, I'm not sure how long it's been. It's probably only been a couple months uh, since the New York hospitals have been required to offer a vegan option. And I, I expect it's a plant-based, whole food plant-based option. Not just It's not just fake meats and fake cheese and stuff. Um, and and that's awesome. Right out of the bat, fifty five percent. I'm sure that's going to grow. Yeah. So thank goodness for Mayor Eric Adams, uh, who is leading these changes in New York. Yeah, and and he's he's had such an amazing story himself. He was diabetic and obese, and and his diabetes, from what I understand, had progressed to where he was actually blind from diabetes. And and after I believe I read somewhere that that he uh, he went to see Doctor Esselstyn uh, in Cleveland and and uh, turned around his, his diet, his lifestyle, and in three weeks, he got his eyesight back. So that's, that, as I understand it, so it's really a miraculous, phenomenal story, and it's really proof that eating eating the right nutrition is powerful and miraculous. Um, so Ken is saying that um, a Seventh-day Adventist mailing went to tens of thousands uh, who they insure? So did I didn't realize the Seventh Day Adventists have an insurance program, Ken? Uh, and uh, so, so hopefully, tens of thousands. That's that's a lot of lot of new plant based folks. And um, what a great great start! I mean, a great step forward. And and this is what we keep seeing. I guess is is low pockets, low efforts, little things that are happening and and the momentum's picking up. And so we have we we have the culture, the brainwashing, the culture that that we're we're trying to move against. So so it, it's taking a while, but I'm sure the momentum will pick up and, and we'll get there. Um, Susan says uh, thank heavens for Eric Adams making changes possible for New Yorkers. Uh, yes, uh, from what I understand, he's also requiring healthier food in in uh, in schools and in uh, in public schools. Do you know more about that? Uh, I that's that's all I know. So I've I've heard that I uh, and how that program is doing um, because certainly what's going on in schools and schools require feeding so much milk and so much junk to the, to our children yeah. is is just just terrible. Yeah, I mean, you, you have to consider that th this is all an industry. You know, the dairy industry's got all this excess milk, so the, the, they've got this client, the government, that then pushes it on innocent children. You know, it's it's just all an industry, and you know, and then they tell us, oh, they're we're keeping our children healthy by giving them milk. No, you're, you know, you're going to make a lot of them fat and sick and diabetic. Yeah. Absolutely terrible. I was I was talking with a pediatrician recently, and she was telling me that they're finding twelve year old girls with breast cancer from from milk, from the growth hormones. Uh, it's it's 
it's criminal it's it's it horrible it's it's unconscionable i i i we cannot possibly be proud so, some some point in history they'll they'll write about how how we abused our children by pretending milk does a body good and it's well, it's let's, criminal let's speak for a moment about the medical industry right uh if you, I, I haven't read any recent polls but in general Americans have a great deal of respect for their doctors. You know, if you did a poll, I'll bet comparing used car salesmen, lawyers, politicians, and doctors, I'll bet doctors would get the highest marks. People respect their doctors. They love their doctors. They call their doctor doctor, you know, with the term of respect. Um, well, let's just analyze how are the doctors doing, <laughs> right? I mean, these are the people in charge of our health, right? So let's give them a grade, just like they give school teachers grades, you know, in terms of how well are students learning their, their math and science, and we kind of grade our school systems and try to improve our school systems. Well, let's look at doctors. How, as a general profession, how are they doing? Well, we are arguably the richest country in the world, and we're six, and we spend twice as much as any other country in, in medical bills. So we spend a great deal on healthcare. So these doctors and the health industry are getting twice as much money as any other country in the world per capita, um, and sometimes way more than twice. So that we're spending trillions of dollars on health care, and we are 61st in the world in longevity, 61st. Our longevity has been decreasing, not increasing, and we all know that the quality of life for many of our senior citizens is not good. We have epidemics of dementia and diabetes and people who um, you know are spending their last years you know, on feeding tubes and, you know, uh, not with any quality of life. So even with a poor quality of life, we don't have much longevity in spite of being such a wealthy nation that spends so much on healthcare. So how is the medical profession doing in general? Give them a grade. That's an F. They're doing terribly. They're obviously not doing their jobs correctly in general. Now, individual great doctors, I'm sure. i I myself have a terrific doctor. He's a plant-based doctor. Um, but collectively, they're obviously not doing their jobs well. And we are the fattest, sickest population ever to walk planet Earth. We have... Here, look at the... Think of this statistic. Remember all the terrible controversy when President Obama instituted Obamacare. Back in around, was it like 2010? It's around 2010. Oh man, the you know the protests of Obamacare, the people saying that the president was going to you know uh, have death panels and people hating Obamacare, and then the supporters of it you know, marching for Obamacare. Well, what happened with Obamacare? Let's just look at it objectively. It's today very popular. 
It has saved millions of Americans a lot of money on their health insurance um, because, uh, and about, I think currently about 20, 25 million Americans get their health insurance through Obamacare. So they have more access to doctors. So those are the positives. Many people have saved money. Many people have more access to doctors. But when President Obama instituted Obamacare, obesity in America was 35%. Now that more Americans are presumably going to the doctor, obesity stands at 42%. So has it worked? Is it working that we send more people to doctors? Are doctors the solution? Obviously not. I mean, let's just face the fact that Obamacare has been maybe good for people's pocketbooks, but apparently it hasn't helped them very much to go to the doctor. They're just getting fatter and sicker. And you go to the doctor, often the doctor is obese. So, you know, the solution is not medical care. It just isn't. Face the facts. I'm not, of course, people should have access to doctors. Of course, doctors sometimes save lives. Of course, there are some wonderful doctors out there. I recommend all the doctors affiliated with the Plantrition Project and the and lifestyle medicine, who are plant-based doctors, um, plant-based telehealth. Uh, but the idea of, of thinking that the solution to health is going to the doctor is obviously proven to be wrong. It's just, it's not even debatable. Going to the doctor, it's not your, 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 the main thing that you need to think about. The main thing you need to think about is what you're putting in your body at least three times a day. Yes. Yeah, it's it's amazing. So it's almost, yes. Yeah, so going to the doctor when the doctors are misguided and, and primarily trained in, in knowing what to prescribe in terms of pharmaceuticals and procedures, and that's really what their training is about. Right. Um, that's totally going going uh, the wrong direction. And with that, let me plug that uh, we'll have Dr. Clapper on. Um, That's, early a good May. That's a he's good a, doctor. That's a good doctor. He's a very good doctor. That's a and great doctor. He's a great doctor. So please join us for that. Watch for the date. Uh, and Dr. Clapper, one of his many missions, but a primary mission for him is to advocate uh, nutrition for for medical school yes. as it turns out most doctors and they're really wonderful people most doctors are really great caring people and they never had any education in nutrition so here it is doctors who are so evidence-based doctors who know that not to know that there needs to be evidence for them to be on board with something they are never shown the evidence of nutrition so so doctors need nutritional education in medical schools. And unfortunately, that's most doctors have never had a single hour of nutrition in medical school. I mean, that's just mind boggling that they go through all this training and they don't know anything about nutrition. So Dr. Clapper's mission is to get more medical schools, get all medical schools offering nutrition. And, and please join us. He'll be talking about the state of nutrition in, med in medical schools. I, I absolutely agree with you. And it is mind boggling that they don't study nutrition in medical school. I, I don't want to let doctors completely off the hook, though, because, you know, they should be able to figure out 
that what you eat is important and they should be challenging their medical schools that this is just nonsense to not teach nutrition in medical school. This isn't hard to figure out. Obviously, it affects your health, what you eat. And, uh, you know, I've heard doctors say that, gee, they didn't teach me anything about it, so I assumed it wasn't important. Well, come on. You should be able to figure out that what you're eating is going to affect your health. And, you, and there's enough evidence now by, uh, by a country mile to figure out that the, the healthiest thing to eat is plants. So um, I want to challenge doctors to challenge their own education and future doctors. Absolutely. And I, I hate to do this, but our, our time is up. Um, this conversation is really getting wonderful. And Susan had some, some great comments about doctors and the pharmaceutical industry. Um, uh, Ken in the comment, uh, uh, he says, Mayor Eric Adams of New York City has a nutrition education program, uh, a nutrition education program for all medical professional in New York, professionals in New York City. That is wonderful, Ken. That's that's great news. But I, but I think Ken just gave Mayor Adams a sex change there, which I don't. Pardon me. I think Ken just gave Mayor, Mayor Adams a oh, sex change. Erica, Erica Adams. <laughs> I, All right, and that's I have heard I know that, that's not true. That that is not true, and Ken, you're welcome to retract that. <laughs> but um, yes, so it's Eric Adams, not Erica, and he's an amazing mayor. And I know that uh, other cities should be watching what he's doing because he's certainly enviable, and he's stepped out and and taken on something wonderful and. And he certainly has a whole team behind him, I'm sure, uh, wonderful people advocating and supporting him and, and carrying, carrying forward with these initiatives. Well, I hate to end this. This is, this is getting really great and what a wonderful conversation. And Glenn, thank you so very much for joining us and, and everybody, uh, who, who's commented and asked questions, uh, thank you and please, uh, Please join us and stay in touch. And uh, uh, Glenn, uh, you want to tell people again how they can get a hold of you? Um, uh, GlennMerzer.com. That's Merzer with a Z. And uh, my latest books are uh, Own Your Health and Food is Climate. And I'll be coming out with another one this summer. Excellent. There's, there's the books. There they are. All right. Well, thank you so much, everybody. And I look forward to seeing you next time. I look forward to seeing you in our Facebook groups. And, and then the, the hot thing that we're all working so very hard on is to build our community platform so that all vegans and whole food plant-based folks can have one place to come together. And let me add that what, what we're working on is to form groups in our community that we're calling passion pods and so every group will be based on a special topic so whatever your passion is whatever topics you'd like to see uh, see promoted and see grassroots ambassadors be empowered to spread the word on uh, we'd love to have you on the platform and and creating the passion pods and networking and supporting each other so with that, Marquita says thank you for the informative conversation.
Peter, I, you, you reminded me when you put something on the screen. I also have started a podcast. So if you just go to the Glenn Merzer podcast YouTube, I could I could use more subscribers. Please subscribe. Absolutely. I'll do that right away. I'll subscribe and and uh, you come and subscribe to our podcast and our YouTube channel and uh, we'll we'll both support each other and and get that much closer to where where the culture, the norm and human for humanity will be a, a vegan standard. So thank you everybody. Uh, bye for now.